episode 149, Overpaying for Healthcare versus Full Day Kindergarten and Raises for Teachers. Today, I speak with Richard Steinhardt, who is a former school board officer in Connecticut. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Between 2007 to 2014, health insurance premiums at large employers have gone up approximately 4.7 to 6% a year, year over year, depending on who you talk to. Meanwhile, during that same period, at one school district in Connecticut, rates climbed by only 3.7% on average. That's a savings of 22 to 39% year over year. And over a seven-year period, that adds up to a 154 to 267% savings. So in this one school district in Connecticut, Ridgefield, this cost containment transpired while maintaining almost exactly the same amount of out-of-pocket spend among the employees, the unionized employees, and with no lessening of the health benefits offered. This is a significant trend line given two critical results. Millions of dollars in savings that were funneled back into educational programs like all-day kindergarten and no increases in class sizes for one. And for two, teachers got raises. This is a really great demonstration of a pretty key economic principle. If you have $1 and you spend it on overly expensive healthcare, then you do not have that dollar anymore to put towards productive uses like paying teachers or funding education. Today, I speak with Richard Steinhardt, who is a former school board officer who endeavored to curb these wasted dollars, dollars that took important cash away from education and teachers and put them back into priorities that really count. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Richard. Thank you, Stacey, and thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it very much. So you were a former, was it member or leader of the school board? I was at various times an officer of the school board, a member of the school board in here in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which I joined in 2007, served almost two full terms and uh, left at the end of 2014. What was the circumstance with the healthcare benefits in the school district when you arrived at the scene? Sure. So that was 2007. And we had a staff of about 700, 700 to 800 teachers, paraprofessionals, custodians, the whole gamut of people you'd see in a school system. If you look at any municipal school system in the country, you'll see that uh, roughly 80 to 85% of their school budget is taken up by employee costs. And of course, it's a people business. You have people teaching students. And I looked at our budgets, and remember 2007, the recession was gaining real uh, significance in the country. Things were very tight. Budgets were very tight. And I looked at our salary increases, and they were running at about the rate of inflation, which is what you'd expect. But healthcare costs were running at significant double-digit increases, you know, 20% a year. And I looked at this, and I said, this is unsustainable. You know, and it sort of exaggerated a bit. If this continued, you'd end up you know, with two teachers teaching our population of 5,200 students. Now, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I think it makes the point that with those kinds of rate increases, there would have to be cuts 
you know, in various departments, you probably have to cut people, you start increasing class sizes and all kinds of things like that that aren't conductive to good public education. So several years before that, I had an HSA account for myself, health savings account plan with a high deductible. And I looked at this and I said, boy, why don't we think about putting HSA plans in place where the district would pay a portion of the high deductibility and the um, employees would have a ability to match that on a pre-tax basis. And so we started thinking about the idea and we went up and talked to our insurance carrier at the time. And interestingly, they were uh, not receptive to it. They said, well, that's not going to work. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, municipal unions don't like these things and they won't approve them. I said, well, I, I can't accept that. And I'm going to try and work on this through the uh, uh, negotiated process of new contracts. And by this time, I'm now the uh, negotiations chairman of the school board and I get to negotiate all these things. So I said, well, I get to negotiate it. I'm going to try it. Is that usual that, that a member or an officer of the school board is actually the one who is negotiating with the payer or the no. union? No. In, in my experience, it's not. Were you just bold enough to take that step? How did that transpire? <laughs> well, it, the answer is yes. Generally, yes. So what typically happens is, in, and this is in Connecticut, but I think the other states uh, operate similarly. You end up with a negotiations committee or some subset of the board, which is generally led by an outside counsel who has lots of experience in these kinds of negotiating matters. Well, when I looked at the way we did it, we had a really wonderful and I think probably the best education attorney in the state of Connecticut doing the negotiations. But in my view, he had an inherent conflict of interest because he negotiated for our district. The next week, he might negotiate for the neighboring district and the next week for the district down the street. And he was always negotiating with the same union people because the union would send representatives from Hartford. And so in my view, his objective was not maybe to get the best deal for an individual school district, but to get a similar deal so that he didn't have a war every time he went into a new, a new negotiating session. So he was a wonderful attorney, he remains a wonderful attorney. But in my view, he had a conflict of interest. And we told him that we were going to negotiate the, the nuts and bolts of these contracts and that we certainly wanted him there. We certainly wanted his advice, but that we would do the negotiation. And he was, he was not happy about that. And this was a man with you know 40 years of experience who literally wrote the book on Connecticut education. Just to clarify, this is the negotiation that you're having with the union in order to explain to them what the new benefit, health benefit package might look like with the, right. with the HSAs that you just mentioned. You brought up the fact that you had had a health savings account in HSA at an earlier position and you thought it might make sense to bring that logic to the school board as a way to ensure that if you've got one dollar to spend and you spend it on health care, that means you're not spending that dollar on on classroom education or books or, or in order to further the mission of education. I mean, it's kind of a, a sunk cost that isn't necessarily producing anything to further the education mission. How did you start thinking about what solution you might bring to bear or, or what was your initial kind of schema? Like, what was the, the plan there when you embarked on this? That's an interesting question. And we looked at the traditional plans that were available and the costs and talk to the carrier about the kinds of increases that we could expect 
over the next several years. And they were not pretty numbers, I can tell you that. They were all double-digit increases. And as I said, I had had experience personally with an HSA, looked at the reduction in premiums that I was paying, and looked at the tax advantages of it, and said, well, why can't we adopt this here? And when we started to look at the numbers and, we, and the insurance carriers started to quote on it, the decreases in premiums were dramatic, not just a couple of points here and there, but dramatic. Because what I think it does is it empowers the consumer, or, you know, the buyer, the, the, the teacher in our case, or the uh, administrator in our case, to shop for some of their health care. And consumerism enters into the equation, which under a traditional PPO or HMO plan, it does not. So we looked at these and, and, you know, I think the way that insurance has evolved in this country, healthcare insurance, because it's an employer benefit, you know, I think that I felt a strong responsibility to provide good care. And I didn't want to provide a plan under an HSA that didn't work for people or put them at a disadvantage. So we worked with a consultant and we designed the plan such that on an after-tax basis, the participants would be paying virtually an identical amount to what they were paying in their previous, like I can't remember if it was a PPO or HMO plan, but the traditional plan that had been in place for a long time. And the savings were dramatic. So we looked at, I, I just got the numbers from the school district, and over the last 10 years, the compound annual growth rate in healthcare costs was 3.7%. And I would dare you to find someone who's had lower increase in costs over that 10-year period. It empowers people to make choices. It empowers people to shop for for services, and it allows for greater, I think, transparency and opportunity to use the system more efficiently. I don't think traditional plans allow for that. And when you said the savings were dramatic, basically, I'm inferring what you mean, is that the school district itself was contributing a whole lot less to pay for health care. Perhaps the co-pays and the, and the out-of-pocket for the teachers themselves remained the same. But net-net, by reducing the overall cost to the extent that it does, I mean, you know, one of the things that is often overlooked by individuals, and it's usually not overlooked by, well, you know, sometimes it's even overlooked by employers, nothing for nothing. But the idea that the higher costs get paid by an insurance company on your behalf, the higher the premiums are going to go up the next year. So by reducing the outlay, even though it's kind of invisible to the employees themselves, ultimately what it does is it reduces everybody's costs the following year. Did I state that well? I look at it a little bit differently. Because you have a high deductible, you remove a whole layer of payments that the insurance company has to make on a participant's behalf. So for example, if you have a bad case of poison ivy and it costs $100 to go to the urgent care center or to the doctor, the insurance company doesn't have to be responsible for paying that. You're paying that out of your, out of your deductible, you know, which has been taxed, affected for you earlier when you made that payment. So there's a whole layer of claims that the insurance company's not paying. And, and again, I, I believe that people can, can now shop for healthcare when necessary. So th- that layer of claim is removed, and therefore the administrative costs to the insurance company is removed, and that reduces the premium. So I think that's really one of the advantages. Now, in our case, up until recently, our claims benefits all got better. Our claims you know, were, were reduced. Our experience ratings got better. And I think people utilized their accounts uh, pretty effectively. And remember, as opposed to the old FSA accounts, the HSA accounts, the balances in those accounts can be carried over year to year. 
So you can build up on a tax-free basis a fair amount of money if you use your accounts appropriately. What did the plan look like after you were done jiggering it? Like, so it started out low deductible, high premium, right. high costs. At the end, after you had your way with it, what ultimately did the plan benefit consist of, just as an overview? It was very similar to what we had, but configured differently. So we went to uh, close to what were at the time the maximum deductibles for single and, and family plans, which I don't remember the exact numbers, but something under $2,000, $2,500 for a single, $5,000 for a family. And the school district paid half of the deductibles, which we could afford to do because of the dramatic decrease in premium costs. So if you added up what we paid in the deductibles as well as our premiums, we were still saving a significant amount of money. And then I think there was a, I think initially a 15 or 20% premium co-share that the um, employees were responsible for. But once you added up those various components and looked at what an average participant paid out of pocket under the original plan and under the HSA plan, it was designed so that they would be the same. And our statistics prove that it pretty much was. We also included all kinds of well care benefits in the HSA plan. There were I believe we had free yearly medical physicals that were included and all kinds of benefits that would promote good, good health care, which I think in these plans is critical. Any plan is critical, and particularly in one of these high deductible plans. So ultimately, at the end of the day, although, as you said, it was configured differently, the out-of-pockets were effectively the same. And by doing this, like in the poison ivy example that you just gave, maybe if an employee weren't, let's just say, feeling like the money was theirs, they would just go to the ER. Exactly. It, which we all know is probably the most expensive place in the country to get health care. And when you're paying at least a portion of it yourself, I think it's incumbent upon you and you realize that this is my money and let's use it wisely. So this is what I'm, I'm fascinated by. I mean, we're, we're talking about this and it all seems to make good sense. And, and I think that the evidence bears it out because, you know, as you say, a 3.7% increase on average over 10 years. I mean, I'm an employer, I can tell you, I would think a magic had fallen from the sky if that was the rates that I had been able to attain. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. But as we all know, especially in the public setting, it is really hard to exact change. I, I mean, you try to change anything, no matter how minor, and, and you're met by opposition from, from all corners. It's, it's really hard. How did you pull this off? Stacey, that's a great question. And there were lots of obstacles. And this took, from conception to full implementation, it took up four or five years to do the whole thing. Uh, the first step, as I mentioned, was to go visit the carrier, and uh, the original carrier. And they were pessimistic about it, simply because they didn't think municipal union workers would accept this. And I just wouldn't accept that because maybe I was naive. I had very little experience dealing with municipal government. And I just said, well, we're going to do it, you know, and, and it's too bad. And maybe that naivety on my part actually worked. So the unions in Connecticut, you know, the teachers union is one of the largest unions in the state now. They were adamantly opposed. They just had this view, which I, I'm not sure it was so rational, but it was their view that these were bad benefits and we were taking things away from their union members. And they just didn't want any part of it. So we started with a smaller union. We started with the administrator's union. 
And that was the first union. You know, it was a very small union. And I think there were 12 or 15 in the union. All these unions are carved up into very specific, you know, silos in, in education. And we worked with them. We explained the benefits. And quite frankly, we had to give on salary to get them to agree to uh, do it initially. But they did it. And it worked. And, and I think they were pretty supportive once they saw that the program was designed uh, to meet their needs. Well, that's another, just to interject, that was a really smart move, I think, just, and, and I'm making stuff up right now, but I think probably administrators are more able to see the trade-offs that you're making. The dollars that are going into healthcare are not going into helping kids, ultimately, but also maybe even, I think a, a trade-off that you're mentioning is also really important, that the more dollars that go into healthcare, the less dollars can go into salaries. So... Well, that's exactly right. Exactly. So we traded off healthcare dollars because we understood the goal was to migrate everyone into this plan. Uh, so we traded off salary dollars for healthcare dollars. And that worked. And then we were able to take the evidence from the administrators union. And I don't recall if the teachers, I, I believe the contract was the next year. So we negotiated the, the administrators contract. And then we went to the teachers contract the following year and said, look, we did this over here with the administrators. This worked really well. We're providing essentially the identical benefits, but as we've said, repackaged. And we'd like to do the same thing here. And it really took some individual conversations between the union representative from Hartford and me, outside of the glare of the negotiating sessions, if you will, to convince them that, that we should do this. And Connecticut is an arbitration state. Teachers are not allowed to strike in Connecticut, the law that goes back about 40 years. And so there's a very prescribed arbitration process. And we finally said to them, look, we'll go to arbitration if you guys won't agree with this. And again, we traded some salary dollars and um, they agreed to do it. And so now it's, it's become a permanent part of the process here. And what did those one-on-one -on -one conversations look like? Obviously, stakes and tempers and egos <laughs> heighten when you're sitting around under the fluorescent lights of a negotiating table on opposite sides staring at each other. So that's probably not the best place to collaborate, let's just say. So you decided to pick up the phone and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with these individuals. What was the tenor and content of those one-on-ones? Well, at this point, you try to remove the emotion from it and say, look, these are good benefits. We're not really taking anything away. So I looked at it as an educational process, you know, like what their union members do, to teach them that we want to preserve their jobs by reducing health care costs so we don't have to fire people. Because there were lots of cuts around at that time, you know, in, in our neighboring districts and in New York, which, you know, we're border town here in Connecticut. And so in New York, there were cutbacks. And we said, look, this is going to preserve membership for you. This isn't going to hurt membership. This isn't going to take away from the benefits that your folks are getting. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm oversimplifying it. But that was the message that we tried to deliver. And then we brought in um, the consultant who worked with us who helped us design these plans. And he could show in a very granular fashion why this wouldn't hurt any of the members and why this really would work. So and there was lots of education that, that went on. And I really think that was what finally convinced them this was a good approach. And what was their 
fear. We're dealing with a, I mean, some of it's obvious. You're dealing with someone's health care, which is fearsome in, in and of itself. But then I could also see that this HSA, well, now you're going to have this super huge high deductible. I mean, that just kind of sounds like, okay, well, you're just passing the costs on to me. How did you kind of assuage that fear? Was was there anything in particular that you said you think which, which was particularly resonant? Or was it all about the salary? Like, okay, your salary is going to go up. Well, yeah, there was a lot of that. But remember, we also agreed to pay half the deductible, you know, that, you know, combined with the premium cost savings that we were having, we were able, the district was able to pay for half of the large deductible. That was a big driver that, look, we're paying for half of this. So you're only responsible for half. And, and that's, a, again, and that's in a pre-tax dollar. So that really is not very much money for you. So, you know, we, we structured it so that it was attractive to the school board, you know, to the, to the as, as our cost, for our cost rather. And then it was attractive to the participant as well. It was not an easy sell. I have to say it took, it took quite a while. Obviously it's still enforced today over, you know, well, 10 years later. So clearly the unions and administration and school board are bought into the notion at this time. Do you have any statistics on how much money got deferred back into the classrooms or how much salaries were able to go up, given the fact that this wasn't a, a financial drain or, or less of a financial drain on the school district? Yeah. Over the 10 years, we've probably saved the town, you know, 15 or $20 million. So if you think about what these budgets look like in the heart of the recession, you know, people would only accept a very small increase in taxes each year, one or maybe 2% at the most. And in one year, I think it was zero. So if you can take 20% of your budget, which is your healthcare costs, and that doesn't go up, but your budget overall budget goes up a point, you can take that money that you didn't spend in healthcare costs and you can redirect that to where it's really needed, which is the classroom which is to programs, which is to people teaching those programs. And that's exactly what we did. So for the seven years that I was on the school board, we never increased class sizes because we didn't need to. We implemented full-day kindergarten, which costs, I believe the number was about a million dollars, which there were all kinds of pressures to do. And if you look at children today at that age, they really need to be in school full-time in my view. We were able to do that. And we were able to maintain the school's status quo despite, you know, a terrible recession floating around outside of us. And I attribute a lot of that to what we did with our healthcare plans by keeping that cost to the 3.7% compound annual growth over the 10 years. And we know that many other, I, I think there are roughly 169 towns in school districts in the state of Connecticut. We know anecdotally that many, many of those towns have uh, implemented what we've done. And we know that in neighboring Wilton, Connecticut, which is a town over, they went to arbitration and based largely on what we did, um, the arbitrators sided with the school board and they, and they instituted health savings account plans. And I believe their results have been similar to what ours were. So we really, we started a trend here. Which is really cool. Although one of the things that this trend implies, given the fact that all across the rest of the nation, costs were spiraling wildly in wildly larger numbers than 3.7%. Than what that implies is just how much cost there is in the system for either people making, let's just say, suboptimal choices relative to where to get the care or the administrative costs at a payer that you mentioned in order to administrate this stuff. Or what else am I missing? I mean, because 
this is a lot of money that we're talking about. What do you think the categories or, or buckets are that comprise those saved dollars? Well, I, I think you're right, Stacey. There's, there's no doubt that there's enormous waste is really the word for it and suboptimization in our system. And I believe that the reason is that no one has an incentive to understand or to care about what those dollars are. Because if you think about it, if you go to the doctor and you're covered under a traditional plan, all you really care about is the 5 or $10 copay or maybe $100 copay that you have to pay the doctor. That's all you're concerned with because the insurance company pays everything else. That doesn't make any sense. You know, you're, you, this is, you know, 20% of our GDP is healthcare and people don't know or have an incentive to understand what any of this costs. So I think that in my view, people have to begin to understand what some of these things cost and how it affects uh, them and how it affects, you know, their plan and what and why these premiums are going up so much every year. I think that's a, a just a very big missing piece of our healthcare policy in this country. What did the payer think about all this? You mentioned at the top of this conversation that you had went into the payer and said, this is what we're going to do. And the payer was, let's just say, less than enthused. <laughs> yeah, how, how did you, what did that conversation look like? And, and how did you ultimately prevail? Just brute force. I just said, this is what we're doing, guys. And if you don't want to do it with us, we'll go to one of your competitors in Connecticut. And there were, I think there are three competitors in Connecticut um, that could handle a group of all of 800 people. That shows you, you know, another issue that we could talk about if you'd like, but a whole other problem with this country, how insurance companies are walled off by state borders. But we told them very simply, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do our best to implement these plans. And if you don't want to do it with us, we'll go to one of your competitors. And so they didn't want to lose the business and they agreed to work with us. Hmm. Okay. So say I am a public entity and I'm, I'm listening to this or nothing for nothing an employer because right. same rules apply. It, it might actually be easier for a, a private employer. Well, I'm just going to say it's probably a whole lot easier than dealing with all the complexities and, and publicity and of a, of a school district or a public environment. What advice would you have to somebody who is thinking to themselves, this is something that I would like to do. Like, are there rules of the road or some heuristic or something that, that you, words of wisdom that you could pass on? You know, well, I can only speak from my experience. And I think what's really critical here is that there's a large educational component that in our case, we used our insurance agent who helped us do this, who understands this, this area really well. And he sat down in groups, held workshops for teachers at various times before school, after school, during school where they could come in and be educated about how these plans worked. And we held those sessions for several months. And if people needed individual you know, help, because there is some record keeping, it's, it's not a total panacea. There is some record keeping that employees have to keep so that they can you know, indicate when they hit their deductibles and things like that. So I think that's really a, a, quite an important component to this because people have never done this before. So it's a whole new way of, or it's a different way of thinking about how they pay for their healthcare costs. People have never really had to take responsibility. Like again, go back to, you know, you pay the copay to doctor and that's really all you're responsible for. You know, under this model, people have to begin to be educated. And I think that would be a large component. So if I was a large employer, I would really want to explain maybe in a, in a PowerPoint, a simple PowerPoint and handouts to my employees, how this worked and why this was a, a, a good benefit for them certainly don't want to take benefits away from people. That's not something I think is appropriate. I think we have an obligation to take care of our population, but 
we also have an obligation to do it uh, cost effectively. So that's number one, training the employees. And, and, and I'm also cottoning onto the notion that having a good insurance agent is probably yeah. a plus. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Or internal folks who can explain it. Yeah, you know, larger employers have an HR department and they can be trained and, and uh, gotten up to speed on, uh, on how all this works. And again, I don't think it's rocket science. It's just paying attention to the details. And I know you have a finance background, but, but was there somebody else or yourself who I, I could see how it would be pretty daunting that, you know, you're kind of dictating what you want this plan to look like, but it's not like anyone's got a degree in insurance. So, you know, what if things go horribly wrong? You know, like, how, how are you fairly secure that all of these details were going to end up to the good thing that it wound up being? Well, at the end of the day, there's a deductible. It's larger than in a traditional plan. But once you go over the deductible, it's 100% insurance. So think of it as sort of reinsurance. You know, your insurance runs out and, and then you get covered if some catastrophe happens. So, you know, people can't afford if they, if they needed a, you know, just to pick something, if they needed a liver transplant. You know, people, most people couldn't afford a liver transplant. But that, you know, people shouldn't be denied that either. So once you got through your deductible, which I think were reasonable. Again, you know, in our case, the district was paying half of that. And God forbid they had a serious illness or needed a liver transplant. They wouldn't have to worry that they, they would be covered. But again, routine things I think people need to take some responsibility for. And that's what you see with an HSA plan. Well, especially if by them taking responsibility for it, it cuts so much cost out of the system, thereby enabling the catastrophic needs to be well to funded. Be met. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be met. And that's and look, that's important. And you know, there have been so many advances in medicine today that there are lots and lots of very expensive procedures that save lives. And that's why, you know, you have a deductible. So once you go beyond that, you know, the insurance company then is responsible for those kinds of things. Okay, so I've got one tip sure. that I've written down here, which is training yep. so that everyone understands the why. You know, why are we doing this? You know what they say, if you lose your why, you lose your way. Right. So let's um, ensure that everyone understands the why. What else? I really think that's, that's critical. I, yeah, I think it's critical. I think you're absolutely right. In a private company or a public company, you know, but in, a, in the private sector, this is a much easier thing to implement because you can you can just do it. You don't have to have union votes, assuming you don't have a unionized workforce, and you can then work with your population to um, to implement this kind of program. Do you think that number two might be to have a guy like yourself? Because the one thing that I'm cottoning onto throughout this entire conversation is that you are a voriferous champion of this endeavor, and you were going to see it through. I would venture to guess that that is a must-have. Yeah, you, you need someone to champion it. That, that There's no doubt. I think if CFOs around the country started looking at these kinds of plans, and I think they are, quite frankly. I know there are some large employers in New York who have plans that are similar to this. And if the CFOs start looking at what it does to their budgets and what it does to their bottom line, there's not a lot of convincing. But, you know, again, because it's healthcare and because it's a big change, you know, people need some hand-holding. And I would hope that companies would be responsive to that. And help their employers understand, or their employees rather, understand how this would uh, benefit them and ultimately benefit the company. And if it's a public company, benefit the stock price. And if they have stock options, help them with their uh, income as well. So you could see the cascading effect this could have. Yeah, for sure. And I'm also going to imply a number three based on the tale that you have woven. Richard, I'm going to suggest that one of the things that you guys also did was you put your money where your mouth is and you gave prospective raises. 
because you're basically saying we truly believe that we're going to save this amount of money and we are going to therefore give you a raise in advance so that you can see the the fruit of this because we're asking you to be confident. This is how confident we are. Well, that's right. And that's that's what I explained. We traded salary dollars when we negotiated this for healthcare dollars. So the the unions probably got higher raises through the these are typically two or three year negotiation contracts for run two or three years. So we probably gave them higher raises for those two or three year periods than they would normally have seen if we weren't able to reduce the healthcare costs. So absolutely right. No, no doubt, Stacy. It has been a true pleasure having you on the podcast today, Richard. Well, Stacy, thank you very much. It has been my pleasure. I hope that uh, I've been able to tell my story and um, people are able to uh, use my experience uh, in, in their endeavors. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.